so here we are back again at Behind the Axle. We're going to be doing another podcast here for you folks. We've got a few great topics for you. We're going to talk about how we're going to get ready for 2020, not just from an athlete standpoint, but now how do we get ourselves the exposure that we need to as a league and as a sport so that people actually pay attention to us on a, on a big scale. We want to get on ESPN. How do we do it? Second, we're going to talk about recruiting younger players to the sport. How do we do it? How young do we go? And what do we do for these kiddos as they uh, as they come up? Are we going to be able to help them develop as the next uh, crew that's going to make it to the Paralympics? How do we do this? And then finally, let's talk about apathy in the league. How do we fix that? So we've got a bunch of folks out there. We've got 600 strong in our league. How can we only have like 10 or 15 people that are making all the noise? So that'll be another topic to talk about and I think we'll get some uh, great conversation going here. I've got my friends Dave Menjin, Chris Cook, and we've got our guest Nick Springer with us this week. So Cookie, introduce our guest star here. Before I do that, thank you Mike Klinowski. Let's give you a proper introduction. Thank you very much. Nick Springer, welcome aboard. So hey, Nick has been Absolutely. So Nick has been playing ball now for 15 or 16 years. He has many, many, many accolades, including three national championships. Team USA from 2005 to 2012, including one Paralympic gold in 2008 and the bronze medal in 12, and also two world gold medals. Not to mention, I'm sure, a trophy case full of trophies. Thanks for coming on board, Nick. Welcome. Yeah, great. Glad to be here. So, Nick, let's start talking about you for a little bit. How did you find the sport, Nick? Um, so I, uh, uh, just to back up, I got hurt when I was 14. I uh, contracted bacterial meningitis when I was a freshman in high school. Um, which is there's a good bit of uh, survivors of that around the around the world really, who uh, who have suffered amputations because of that. And before I got hurt, I was always an athlete, um, always very active, and I was a huge hockey player. I started playing hockey when I was five years old, up in uh, the New York City area. Um, and right after I got hurt, I remember still being in rehab and uh, thinking to myself, like, am I going to be play? Am I going to play hockey again? Am I going to get back out on the ice? And uh, discover sled hockey shortly after. And I remember, I mean, I remember the first time I got back out on the ice um, in a sled. And it didn't matter that that I was skating with my arms. It doesn't matter. It didn't matter that I was sitting down, um, inches off the ice, uh, skating like that. I was a hockey player. It was the whole athletic identity that had immediately come back to me. And uh, when I was like 16, about two years after I got hurt, I'd been playing sled hockey for two years. And one of my teammates who was very involved in adaptive sports in the New York City area recommended wheelchair rugby. Went, checked it out, and my first thought was, ah, it's not for me. It's not hockey. And <laughs> I'd say there was probably, I'd, yeah, I'd say it took probably a full six months, maybe convincing me to actually go back and, and check it out more. Um, and it wasn't until I, I really started like, going to practice with New York, and New York City had a, a team that practiced over in New Jersey at the time. Um, but I was going back more and more and, and getting more into it that I realized, you know what, this could be. This could be a lot of fun. This could be a really great sport. Um, I was the only one on the team in high school at the time, and and you know, like I said, it was it was a new sport. And uh, being two years hurt, it also really helped me to kind of integrate into the 
uh, disabled community and, and get to know a lot more about what the rest of my life is going to be like and how to handle the situation that I was kind of thrust into. Um, and it, you know, it, it took, uh, it was about maybe three years that I was playing both hockey and rugby. And once it came time to graduate and go to college and figure out what I was going to do next in life, I made a really hard decision and decided I played hockey 15 years. It'll always be my love. <clears throat> I'll always be a hockey player, but I saw more of a future in rugby. So hung up the skates and uh, decided to make a full, full run at it. Hey, Nick, I'm curious, what, what are the parallels between hockey and wheelchair rugby? And uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's pretty close, but talk to it from your point of view. Well, the biggest parallel that I see is just really the whole intensity of it. Um, a lot of the sports, are, uh, you, a lot, every sport takes something out of you, and every sport asks for something out of you. But hockey is one of the sports that is very mentally tough and physically tough, and the more tired you get in one, the more you're going to have to rely on the other. Um, and it's just, it's non-stop action too. I mean, you don't get breaks. You're out there and basically the whole time you're just going gung-ho. So that's one of the parallels that I really saw was just the, um, the mentality and the physical aspect of it were very hand-in-hand. And I've tried a lot of different sports, and this is one that are very similar to the fact that you have to be both mentally strong, you have to be physically strong. You're going to get tired in one aspect. You're going to have to rely on the other a little bit more. Um, but the only way to be successful is to find a really good combination of the two. That's deep stuff, Dave. Dave, I was you waiting know, I, for you. Sorry. Uh, I was wondering if uh, – I don't know if you remember, but – there was a tournament in Windsor where I think you played pick, picked up with our team a um, long time ago. I'm thinking that's probably right about the time that you gave up hockey because you were so serious about trying to get really good at this sport that you were, uh, as I like to refer to myself, a rugby whore. You just would play any place you had an opportunity. Do you remember that tournament? Yeah, I do. Um, that was my uh, sophomore year of college. Uh, it was... 2005, 2006, maybe. And uh, I actually played that year with uh, in the Canadian League. I played for a team up in Alberta with uh, some really great guys up there in that league. And uh, the Windsor tournament over in Ontario was how I uh, basically got my games in to be eligible to play in that league. And uh, uh, going back to what I didn't know back to what you said about yeah, yeah, yeah. I played. Uh, that's where I, that's why I was up there. But going back to what you said about being a rugby whore, uh, man, I was the epitome of that back in the day. I remember one season, I think I played for like seven different teams, um, just bopping around from tournament to tournament. But that year specifically was, I was on a U.S. developmental team at the time, the team that went down to Rio. Um, there was a big group of us, and I was still fighting for my first spot on the USA team that was going to go to Christchurch, New Zealand in 2006 for the um, for the, uh, the World Cup. And the reason I actually picked to do that, other than the fact that it was an experience that was fun as hell was because the way that I felt learning the sport wasn't going to be just playing with one team and going to a tournament playing against the same group of guys. It was not only getting as much rugby as I could get, but an assortment of rugby, playing different leagues, playing different teams, having different roles myself, um, uh, learning, you know, learning, being up in Canada and learning uh, how they play up there, learning how, um, teams that were out of the southeast, I was in Florida at the time, kind of their strategies and their and how they played, and it was just picking up every aspect of the game that I could. 
Hey, Nick, I remember the... Sorry. Go ahead, Chris. I just, I was going to chime in. I remember I had heard about you, but frankly, the first time I ever saw you, you were, uh, once again, being a whore. You were uh, in Vegas, I believe. I can't remember who you were playing for, but suddenly I'm on the court with you, and I'm like, who is this guy? And then somebody said, oh, that's Nick Springer. I said, oh, okay, I've heard about this kid. And I'm just saying, I usually was able to find a way to pick most everybody. I couldn't touch you. And uh, you just shifty, shifty back and forth. I'm like, dude, this guy's going to be really a player. And then I was talking to Eric Wolf, and he, and he said, oh, yeah, you don't know about it? He's got a full truck, and blah, 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 blah. He started motor-mouthing it. Anyway, the bottom line is, very first time I met you was on the court. And I was very impressed. So, Nick, well, I appreciate it, man. Yeah, it was, uh, like I said, I bopped around. Tried to try to just get as much experience as I could get back then. Um, and if that means playing with a team here and a team there. And, um, yeah, I remember that tournament. I think I was with Denver. Um, they split into two teams. Right. Um, that and I was, I was like 21 years old. I'd never been to Vegas, and this was a good reason to go. Gee, do you have a good time? Oh, yeah. I had a Come on, man. I, I have a blast everywhere I go. <laughs> so, boy. I was in Vegas last weekend with a bunch of youngsters and actually had to kind of take care of them. Glad I didn't know you then. <laughs> yeah, my Phoenix team was there last week, um, and they had, a, they had a lot of good things to say about it. Yeah, they won the tournament. They did, yeah. We sent out a lot of, uh, a lot of our uh, developing guys, and, um, you know, it's it's – I'm pretty happy to see where the league is going in terms of, of youngsters coming up and the enthusiasm. And um, I think the thing that I love to see the most about it isn't the fact that, I mean, sure, you, you have a lot of guys out there who are really like, oh, yeah, I want to go to the Paralympics and I, I want to um, I want to be the best rugby player I can be and win a gold medal and win lots of awards. But you'll see a lot of guys who are just saying, look, two years ago I was playing, I'm on a high school football team. Now I just want to go out and be one of the guys. Um, right. One of the one of the greatest things in a sport is looking at a kid who maybe got out of rehab three four months before doesn't know what the rest of his life is going to be like. All he knows is what his therapist told him, and and you know, he's been around his friends and his family who kind of treat him. And he comes out here, and all of a sudden we're just guys going out, knocking around, playing a physical sport that we love. Um, afterwards, going out and messing around, having a few beers and having a few laughs, and. Uh, the look on their face of, you know what, my life is going to be okay, is one that can never, you know, any award and any 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 competition can never, uh, never, uh, never come close to what that, seeing that look on someone's face is like, because we've all been there, and we all know exactly what that feeling is. So who is the person who had the most influence in your rugby career? Who is the person who changed the way you played the sport, changed the way you thought about it? Because, I mean, you were talking about the people that were recruiting you in the first place. But was there someone who, like, just was the one who changed it all for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's not well-known. He's a, 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 one of our Sledak teammates, one who got me into the sport. He was a paraplegic, and he was actually on the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Sledak team in Nagano in 98, I believe. And he was one of the ones who really pushed me into the sport. He was the one who kind of pushed me along the way because uh, he saw potential in me. So, I mean, he was and, – and he was also from New York. So I grew up with him, and, and it was it was the time that uh, I was still learning 
um, my ability and what I could and couldn't do. And not only that, I was in high school, which is just kind of a confusing time in general. So he's the one who really pushed me in the right direction. And then once I got done the hover rounds, the lightning, um, from my first year, and we were the gunners for a few years after that, that entire team, I mean, we, we were brothers. It was, it was Mike Whitehead was down there with me, uh, uh, Pat O'Connor, who was still one of my uh, closest and dearest friends, Dave Jenkins, who, who taught me so much about the sport. Um, and and really kept me focused when all I wanted to do was go out and be a 21 year old kid and mess around. And and Ed Hooper was uh, was influenced. I mean, just everyone down there was unbelievable. And then once I made the USA team too, when I was uh, 21, they also kept me on the right direction because they saw how valuable I was to the sport. Um, even though we don't see eye to eye about a lot of things anymore, Gumby was huge in, in bringing me up and and just telling me I had the potential to to be a champion one day. Um, Andy Cohn, Scott Hogsett, who was, uh, me and him used to have talks between tournaments when we were bored that would last hours about everything and anything, and which is one of the reasons that I'm out here in Phoenix um, with him. And, uh, I lived at Zupan for a while, and we were training, and, and um, me and Chance and, and Rieger and Seth all started together with the developmental team and went all the way to um, Beijing together, so we were the we were the rookies, we were the young guys. Um, even though we was only there for a little while, Justin Patterson was was always uh, one of my one of my homies, one of my closest friends. Um, you know, it's it was the community that was huge in not only me becoming the player that I was, but the team becoming the players, the team that we were in, in winning that um, championship in Beijing. It was a really it was a community effort because. We had the support of the league. We had support of the USQRA, and we were representing them. So they really helped us to get there. It was huge. It was. It was. We couldn't have done it without. Uh, it was a team effort all around. Do you think it's? Do you think it's changed at all? Do you think that you don't that that US wheelchair rugby doesn't have as much support as it did in the past? That it's not a whole league effort. Are there? Things that have changed over the last few years since Beijing that you think have made a difference in in how we were represented. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it has. It's changed. It's changed um, fundamentally. In I'm trying to think of my words. Well, one, one major thing that's different: the last Paralympics where there was no shot clock was Beijing. Yeah, and, yeah. It was it was a slowdown game. Oh, uh, that Canada game. There was a quarter where I think there was four or five points scored. It was unbelievable to watch. I've never seen anything like that, especially at that level of play. So I think yeah, I remember that, that we ended up changed quite a bit. We uh, we ended up winning that Canada game in Beijing by about five or six, which back then was a huge gap. But by today's standards, you know, you could you could be out of timeouts. Your guys could be tired. Five or six could that could you could come back in, in half a quarter and tie it up. Um, the shot clock has actually been really great for the sport. When it first came around, I was a little bit against it, but I think it was more because I was still pretty new to the sport and I didn't see the potential that it had. But it's made the sport a lot faster, a lot more competitive, um, and it's made games a lot more exciting to watch because, like I said, back in the day, you were up five or six, you could just sit there and stall all day. 
and the other team would reach, get a penalty, and you could just stall, keep the guy in the box. But now you have to score. It gives you that urgency. It gives you the rush, and it gives the defense a better chance of bringing it back, and it gives the team behind a, a greater chance of, of you know, coming from behind and, and tying it up. Um, you, you can never count a team out. Teams can come back. It's never game over in the sport. That's true. Yeah, a little historical perspective right there. So in 95 at Nationals, no shot clock, and I believe Tennessee was the defending champs, and they were playing on one court in a semifinal game against Sharp. And I believe it was something like 31 to 29 at half with no shot clock. And on the other court is Tampa and Quadzilla, and we're playing against each other, and we were rivals. And we decided we can't press them. We know that. We'll know it'll be a 10-point game if we do that. So we played a slowdown game. Halftime on one court, 31-29. Halftime on the other court, 8-7. to seven. Yep. Oh, yeah. You'll, never, you'll never see that again. I guess the point is, you know, with the shot clock, yes, it makes it more exciting. And the advent of everybody pressing 32 minutes if they have to, that also makes the game way more exciting. Uh, it brings in a lot more endurance, too, because when you have to go nonstop, when you can't take that break. Um, and I remember when, when we were playing with our round, we were playing in a game, and me and White had fourth quarter, looked at each other. It was like a tie game. And he just kind of sat there and dribbled it for about two minutes, and me and him caught our breath, and I was like, okay, now we're ready to go. Um, it changes the whole strategy. It changes everything about the game. One, sorry, one of my first uh, one of my first USA tournaments, uh, Canada Cup in 2006, um, we played Germany. And it was the same way. They were just a stall team. They played a high-low. They had two really high guys, um, like really tall guys, who were both three fives, I believe. And the end of the game... It was like 14 to 12. Wow. Because they just, they just stalled that much and dropped back in the key every time. I think what's changed in the league is the fact that being on USA has become a lot more high profile. And there is a huge difference between being on the team and just and coming up through the sport. Um, on top of that, competition has gotten so much more cutthroat within the league itself. Um, and you have guys who are out there and... They want to win at any cost. If that means stabbing their own teammate in their back, they want to win at any cost. And it's easier to forget. This is something that I say a lot. It's easier to forget the reason that rugby was basically invented, the reason that it's a sport, is because we didn't want to exclude anyone. Because quads were getting excluded from, excluded from basketball because, um, you know, guys were ending up in wheelchairs and going, well, now I got nothing to do. And we made the sport not to win or lose, but because of it's, it's a sport that everyone can play. And I see guys getting so com so competitive that you get a young kid who comes out who all he wants to do is play a sport again. All he wants to do is, is be around other people with a similar disability and and they can get scared off easier um, because it's so cutthroat at times, because it's so competitive at times. Yeah, I've seen some of that too. I, I would agree, Nick. I think there's some athletes that have played team sports before and you can tell right away you know, they get it. They're not going to be scared off by uh, being criticized or not yelled at necessarily, but just scrutinized first two practices, three, four times they come out. They get comfortable and they're they're part of the group. And then there's others that they went, oh, yeah, I want to try this out. Or they've seen murder ball or somebody has told them about it because they know somebody that plays ball or what have you. And they come out and they go, 
whoa, this is intense. I don't want people like this talking to me, and I'm not coming back. And we lose those guys. Yeah, it's it's uh, this isn't. You have guys on on the same team who have different. Uh, they're different levels. They have different goals. They have different. Um, you know, you could have a guy who's out there who all he wants to do is win, 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 and he's intense, and he can be yelling at his teammates. Then you have another guy out there who all he wants to do is maybe get back in shape a little bit and have a little fun and be one of the guys. And if he's going and getting yelled at every day, I mean, this isn't. Well, this is the top of our game. We're not going to paid the big bucks to be here. Um, some guys have, a, have another job. Some guys have a real job. Um, you have guys out there who who have a family and and. I've seen guys just go, you know what, I got I got better things to do than come out and get yelled at every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, this That's is a this is a league with different it's a league with different sorry, it's a it's a league with different levels. And no you know, you got one guy who's a recreational player who just wants to come out and have a little fun, and you got another guy who's going towards Tokyo twenty twenty and even though their mindsets are different places, uh, on the court, it's also gonna be the same way off the court. And it's, I've just seen a lot of guys get scared off of that. They're not even scared off, but just burnt out. Like, why am I driving an hour on a Wednesday after I worked all day and my family's at home? I can't yell that. Or three hours. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hang on. You started when you were 16, Nick. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I was about 16. So one of our topics is getting youngsters or getting younger players involved. Do you have any perspective on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, for me, I remember when I got hurt, like I said before, all I wanted to do is get back into sports because I was an athlete. I was a high school hockey player. And um, I got excited not only about just getting back on, at the time it was the ice, but same with the rugby, getting back on the court. I got excited about being an athlete again, but on top of that, I got excited about the future and what I could do in the sport. And where it could take me, which has um, luckily been all over the world. Right. Um, and on top of that, I mean, when when somebody gets hurt, especially when you get hurt when you're 17, it's so easy for somebody to go, oh, well, I'm really self-conscious. Am I ever going to be able to do this again? And what's the rest of my life going to be like? I mean, that's that's what I tell people when they go, what's the worst part about ending up in a wheelchair? I go, it's got nothing to do with the physicality of it. I mean, that's frustrating, yeah. But... For the most part, it's really you're scared of the unknown because you don't know what the rest of your life is going to be like. And you could you could be. I was one eighteen year also, Nick, and I'm just curious. You know, I played rugby in high school and a little college, football and so forth, but I didn't find out about wheelchair rugby until I was 27. So there was a long period there of just you know I tried track and field and a little bit of swimming, didn't like it, wasn't for me. Then I found rugby. I was like, whoa, this this actually works. This is a good fit. And it was right away, you know, it was life-changing, self-esteem building and all the above. And did you feel like, you know, when you found rugby or we found hockey, it was like, damn, yes, this is it. Yeah, and you know what? It's a sport, but it's so much more. It's a life-changing experience um, that, can, that can give back so much to a person's quality of life in so many different ways, be it mentally, physically. I mean, you get a person who can't, maybe they can't transfer into their own car, but they want to play the sport. So they're thinking, okay, if I get stronger, then I'm going to be better on a rugby court. And without even thinking about it, they're strong enough to transfer into their own car all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, well, it's, that's it's the things that you get. You were talking about, right? Like I see guys come into a gym who they're 
two fives or threes and they're being pushed across a hardwood floor by their girlfriends. And they yeah. like oh, yeah. they're capable of, of all they see in front of them is what they can't do. And they come to a practice and they watch a guy with way less function doing way more than they ever realized they were capable of. And that's when that light goes on. And, and then you transfer that to the international game, the opportunities I've had in South America to go to Colombia and Peru and, and, uh, talk to all those teams and those new startups with guys who, who saw nothing from their lives and that's what they expected and that's what their society expects of them and then have the opportunity to now be elite athletes and have people you know want their autographs and and take their gloves after a game i mean just it it really flips their world upside down in a, a very positive way absolutely um, I mean, I've seen a lot of guys come in at the power chairs, like you said, they're two fives. Um, and it's just, they don't know what they're capable of. And a lot of that is, is true because they don't know what they're capable of because no one ever told them you can do this or you can do that. It was just like, okay, this is what the rest of your life's going to be like. Here's a power chair. Um, come back in for therapy. We're going to get you better in a therapy room. And it's like, well, there's a big world out there. Why don't they get better in that? This whole point in, in, Rehabilitation, that's the whole point of physical therapy is getting back out there, but you're not going to get back out there unless you take that first step. And it can be scary for a lot of guys. And having the support of your teammates and having the support of everyone out here tends, to, it takes a lot of the unknown away. And it takes a lot of the, the darkness of that first step. You don't know what you're stepping into away. And it's really comforting. It's really, uh, it gives guys confidence. Yeah, and just seeing something in front of you that looks like possibility is is something that you really have to work to get to and you have to have the opportunity to see that and see it as something that is for you that you have the possibility of being anything you really want to be at that point right instead of just like when you come out of the hospital it's like i just want to get my life back i want to i don't want to be seen different from anybody else i just want to be with my buddies and and go back to work or or whatever that looks like for you and um, sometimes it's just about how do I how do I know that I'm going to make it through the day and get to tomorrow um, so it's a big jump and that possibility possibility I throw that word around a lot but it really can be everything to a guy yeah and everyone think, everyone has their own everyone has their own challenges and everyone has their own um, like you said before about uh, Beijing at the podium, top of the podium, everyone has their own top of the podium. Whether it's a, a kid who's out there who goes, okay, I just want to have the endurance by the end of the season to make it through a, a whole game. That could be the top of his podium, and there's no prouder feeling than getting there. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the thing about the sport. With the different functions, different classifications, different disabilities, everyone is fighting their own battle, and everyone wants to win their own battle. And having the support of, of uh, the community around you is a uh, it gives you confidence and it still confidence and, and, and self-esteem and, and when you get it, when you achieve it, there's no greater feeling. So I think uh, also real quick on that, going to the first few tournaments and seeing other people that are kind of your same level or, you know, you're in that same sort of window as other athletes you see who are maybe more experienced, you kind of look up to them and they go, wow, you know, there's more possibility than I thought. And I, I, I can really do this. And, you know, you have a, a group of support peers and you can assimilate into that and then 
challenge yourself when you go home and try and do things that maybe you saw or perhaps somebody told you, you know, maybe a transfer, maybe a certain kind of a pass on the court, all kinds of stuff that I just remember it opened up my whole world. I had no clue what other quads were doing until I was part of that group. Yeah, especially for a new injury. Um, somebody who's been hurt for two years and is frustrated with their physical capabilities, and all of a sudden they look at a guy who's in their, who was in their same exact position, who was a teenager, who was, however, um, you know, was in her exact same position 10, 15 years earlier, and all of a sudden they're living a really successful, happy life. Um, and it, it doesn't look as challenging as physically as it might to, you know, be a year and a half hurt. Right. And it gives you that extra motivation where, um, you know, maybe before you're like, well, this situation sucks. But it gives you that extra motivation to go, well, this situation sucks, but if I work hard enough, I'll get through. All of us know how amazing this sport can be, not just like on the court, but like what it does off the court. But how do we get these younger athletes involved so that it's not seven years living in their parents' basement before they figure out how the heck to get out, how to, you know, get this support system that's absolutely huge in so many people's lives. How do we get to these folks? And I'm I'm talking about that from like a, a clinician standpoint too. Like I'm a physical therapist in my free time, and I'm trying to figure out how we get those kids, literally kids, in, your free time? in chairs. Yeah, it's it's a side thing. Um, <laughs> how do we get these kids in chairs? How do we get them out there? Like, Some of it's just about opening your eyes and looking around you. You know, I I can't tell you how many people have said. I found the sport because some guy ran into me at the grocery store and said, hey, you look like you, you were a quad. You ever hear about rugby? And that's their introduction to it. Um, yeah. Obviously, if you're in a hospital setting in, in a place where there's rehab, you have more opportunity to find new people. Um, but I, I think it really is a grassroots kind of thing. People have to be watching out for other people and – and be missionaries of the sport, for lack of a better term. Missionaries. I hear uh, Tony Durham picks up uh, athletes at restaurants. I, I don't know if you guys do the same thing. Maybe that's what exactly. we need to do. Well, uh, like uh, like Dave said, it is a grassroots thing. I mean, you, you we have to be getting out there. and We have to be constantly trying to help from not only a sport perspective, from what just a pure mentorship perspective. I mean, out here in Phoenix, we go to the hospitals and the rehabs all the time and we'll meet right. with young kids and be like, dude, I got something that you're going to love. Um, and you got the therapist too saying, you know what, you're, you're going to love this sport. Like we should go check it out. We'll be practicing. We look over and, and we have our tournament. We'll, we'll look over and we'll see, um, kids just sitting there being pushed in with, they got their halo still on and their eyes light up at the possibility of like, wait, you mean I could do that one day? Um, right. and especially, Especially for kids too, it's it's the competitiveness of it, it's the the physicality of it. Like, dude, you're gonna love this sport, man. You're gonna get out there and you're gonna throw your body around and you're gonna be a kick-ass rugby player. And it's just getting them excited the same way you would get a kid excited about, um, say, he's a freshman in high school and you're, you you want to get him out on a football team. It's kind of the same thing, man. They're, they're just kids and and you've got to get them excited about doing something. Doesn't matter that there's well, a wheelchair. Getting the word out. That's that's big too. Like when I. Uh, my ex-sister-in-law invited me to come to an elementary school to do a demo because in Michigan we have this thing called Disability Awareness Day. And they spend half a day with kids in middle school 
or elementary school, right at the line there. I don't remember which. And they focus on all the differences in people and they get to wear a mask and walk with a cane and ride in a wheelchair and, and see how different things are for people and the things that people can't do. And she said, I think that would be really cool for them to see something that you can do and that you want to do. So we had the opportunity to go and do a rugby demo in front of these elementary kids. And that is an opportunity for for these little kids to see the sport and tell their families about it and tell their friends about it. And I really found that I got a lot more interest around the community from people as to when our games were and where we played and that kind of thing just from getting the word out and for people being exposed to it. And that's, that's you know, the idea. If you can get to ESPN, right? Mike's been talking about ESPN, I think, as long as I've known him. Um, <laughs> and Chris. So, so, let me chime in on that. Uh, first of all, uh, my local team here, High Five Sierra Storm, we're basically based in Sacramento and Reno. However, we have some Bay Area ties as well. So there's two NBA teams in the immediate area, Sacramento Kings and the Golden State Warriors. And one of our things this year that we're going to try and do, and I think it kind of it kind of touches both subjects we're talking about, finding younger players and exposing our sport. What we're going to try and do is do a demo at a halftime of each of the NBA venues and uh, putting together a letter, trying to get uh, try to get it worded just right, so that we can meet the people that would actually be able to help us get this demo on. We want to make sure nobody brings any stick on that day, and not gum up their courts and injure some NBA players. But we're thinking there's twenty thousand people in the arena. There's a TV audience. There are you know sports stations that are. I should say, network affiliates with sports um, broadcasters, etc., that will be there. It, it can reach people that are next, perhaps, potential players, and it also can expose our sport so that we also can do fundraising that way as well. And I was thinking if it's successful, um, maybe we should reach out to all the areas that have NBA teams or even college basketball teams that we could perhaps tap into their halftime shows. We uh, had a great opportunity to do that. And uh, they ended up uh, not wanting to do it, the Pistons. Although I don't know if I, it's a good idea for you to do that. Shouldn't you have some better players if you're going to expose the sport on television? Dave and Nick, will you come out and play with us, please? That would be awesome. No, I, I think when I'm enjoying my short little retirement here, so <laughs> that's huge. I think exposure on that level. You know, who are you going to see in that audience? Not just athletes, but like there are going to be people out there that are just like, God, I didn't know this existed. We need to show exactly. more of this. We need For everyone to see this. Friend's kid uh, uh, was in an accident and. He needs. He's looking for something to do that's fun and exciting, and uh, draws that kid into it. You know. Well, yeah, I think and that's that's part of the that's program. What we do about the sport is we can't piggyback on any other sport really because we're so unique and so um, original. 
that, I mean, I get people who still come up to me all the time, like, oh, yeah, you play that basketball thing. It's like, no, we are way better. But, uh, <laughs> you, know, nice. you see, you see wheelchair basketball teams who are out there all the time and NBA games. You see sled hockey teams who are out there, uh, skating in between periods of NHL games. With us, it's something that we keep having to push and promote and excite people about because they're not going to understand it. They're not, they're going to think, oh, rugby. Yeah. That's, I don't really understand rugby. That's played on grass, I thought. And we have the opportunity here because we have a wonderful sport that is so awesome, so original that we can promote it. We just have to find out the right way out. And a lot of it has to do with kind of getting away from the disability aspect of it and focusing on the athletes, the athletes themselves and the athletic um, aspect of the sport. I Pushing out the fact that we're a bunch of adaptive athletes, but we're athletes who just happen to be in wheelchairs. I tell you the one thing that, that lights me up the most is, and the the Bears do this. We do uh, a demo at a halftime show of a Northwestern game. It's hearing when the first hit happens, the audience, the crowd, when they get all lit up about that. They're just like, oh! They realize that it's real. That it's like, I, it is a legitimate game. Note, I love the collective woo factor. <laughs> it, wait, the first time a big audience sees a hit or somebody goes down or somebody does a facial... It's like, oh my God, that guy's disabled. Yeah, but he's an athlete. Exactly. Like, aren't you afraid you're gonna get hurt? Well, I'm part of the sport, man. If I get hurt, I get hurt. He's already yeah, crippled. What's the problem? Progression, right? Like, my niece saw Bob Lujano at a sectional, and she was five, six years old, and she she was sad and she was almost crying because, you know, his limbs are so. I mean, they're so short. And and then she saw him play, and he was kicking my ass. And all of a sudden, he was her favorite player, and she saw him completely differently. She thought he was, like, superhuman. And just to see that progression in her uh, was just awesome for me. Wait a minute. Did she see Bob eat pizza, though? No, she did not see Bob eat pizza. <laughs> or pop out of the box. That's working with the kids So, let me let me throw something out there. Um, my phone just cut out. Um, no, my apartment. I'm just in a crap area. No, I agree with you 100 about how getting. So here's here's the thing. This is how we segue into our next topic. Is that we've got you guys out here talking about you know. NBA games and getting athletes out on the court and, you know, the first oohs and ahs and all this. How do we get more people in the league that are thinking like this? Because I think, and I don't think this is my only, I'm, I'm the only one who has this opinion, but there is this general apathy within the league. And, you know, people, people are not as active in the sport as they should be. And I think that... Part of it is that, okay, I'm going to join this committee and that committee is not going to do anything for the next 10 years. So what's that thing point? But how do we get people to believe in stuff like this? How do we get, you know, uh, the Jeremy Hannaford's, how you're hooking up with uh, local rugby squads or Dave with your, your group? Or how do we get people to play like the gosh darn Golden State Warriors and stuff like that? How do we get people to believe that... These are the things that make a big difference. And I think 
part of it is that people haven't thought like this before. And I think that part of it is people just need to hear that this is something that they can do. What do you guys think? It's easy. It's easy to go out and do it. Um, you know, it's easy for, for like Jeremy to go out and talk to a local uh, rugby team or talk to a local. Uh, uh, I know a lot of teams are hooking up with the roller derby in the, in the area. Um, and, you know, it's easy, but it takes effort. It takes effort to keep the sport going. It right. takes effort to keep, uh, to keep a team going. And guys are going to have to really step up and realize, okay, if I want this sport and if I want my team, you know, Seattle or Reno or Phoenix or Chicago, if I want them to keep going, then we're going to have to work at it. Um, well, the empathy, you know, though, comes from a lot of places. Like, first of all, you have you have a lot of guys out there that they just want to go out and play a couple of times a year and show up at practice and hang out with their buddies. They don't want to deal with all the politics and all the BS. And I, I can't blame them for that. Um, and then you have people at the opposite end of the spectrum who care, but they're sick of seeing the rules not apply the same to everyone from the way they feel about it. They feel like, well, we, we, we try and make the rules stronger so that people won't do things that are against the rules, and then they end up getting away with it anyway. And they just get frustrated by it, and they they throw up their hands and fuck it, not there's nothing I can do. I'm just gonna play. See, I think that's bullshit. I think that's a coward's way out. I think that people, if they really believe in the sport and all the good things that come from it, that they need to step up and and put their biscuits on the line. Because, I mean, if you're willing to roll over that quickly, then you don't really love the sport. But that's easy for you to say because you're one of the guys that are doing that, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, you have to you have to at least be able to understand the perspective that somebody else has on it. I agree that the the best way to make a change is to be involved in the change. Uh, you know, plenty of people have complaints and no suggestions on how to fix it, let alone mm-hmm. uh, put any effort behind it. But I think that the the road to getting more people involved is the people that are that are involved, the people that care enough and feel like that they make a difference, have to draw those people in, find those people in the six hundred people that play in the league. I have a suggestion. Once we get like if a local team, for instance the Phoenix Heat or I don't know, Grand Rapids or whoever, Chicago Bears. No, not them. If, okay, whoever. <laughs> whoever. If a local team has something that's working within the community, we need to share it. And we need to tell people, like for instance, if this thing with the Sacramento Kings and the Warriors actually works, then I think we share how we got in and we tell them, well look, the Warriors and the Kings did this. Why can't the Pistons or the Bulls or the Suns or whoever, why can't everybody take a part in this? Because it, it gained exposure for our sport and it also found us new athletes and it reached out into community and it probably put some dollars in the pockets of those teams. There's a lot of different things that we all could be doing 
But if somebody's got something successful, we need to share it. Absolutely. And I think that I'm going to kiss the president's ass here for a second. In the last full court press, he's talking about sharing what's going on in the league, sharing, you know, people's stories and and what has been successful for their team, whether it's, you know, a simple fundraising thing, whether it's a bigger deal thing like what you're talking about. You got to share it with the rest of the league. If you keep that stuff private, then you have done okay. the sport a disservice. Okay, you let me ask you something. That stuff All wild three right of now. you have NBA teams in your town where you live. So do they do 50-50 raffles at your teams, at your uh, NBA team games? Chicago has a team? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, yeah, actually. Let's see. <laughs> no, but seriously, if you've been to a game, you'll know. Or maybe a baseball game, or maybe a football game. But all the these Lions different. Do, but I don't know about the Pistons. But okay. okay, well, I think I know all three of those sports do in the Bay Area and in Sacramento. And that's something I'm going to tap into because it's no money out of the team's pocket. They donate to a charity anyway, so why not make it us? You do a demo. And 50% of that raffle money goes to that team. And I bet Phoenix you actually just did a 50-50 at the uh, uh, Arizona Coyotes hockey game about two weeks ago. And right. uh, we got a lot of good exposure. We got a lot of people interested in saying, hey, where can I come watch it? Where can I come to this game? Exactly. Um, obviously, right. it, was, it was a hockey game, so obviously we couldn't, we're, you know, we, we would look dopey on the ice, skidding around. But uh, we had people who were interested in it. And basically, it was just us putting ourselves out there. We didn't really know what to expect. We didn't really know the show a video, or how'd you do it? Uh, no, it was so. What we did is, I think I showed a video before the game. We weren't actually inside the uh, arena. Okay. Um, everybody on the team. There was probably about maybe 16, 15, something of us. Everyone on our team split up into groups of like two or three and just went around. And we had big signs and and the sandwich board cutouts that said fifty fifty raffle and. Um, people are coming up to us going, okay, well, yeah, I always do the raffle. What, what are you guys? Like, what, what am I donating to this time? Um, and you know, you that's, did that that's, in the concourse. Yeah, we did that, uh, all over the arena. Um, okay. We, so uh, the in, they let you, the team, uh, set that up for you. I mean, you had to coordinate with them, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was official. It was an official thing through the coyote organization. Oh, that's yeah. Funny. But Nick, you reached out to them. They didn't come to you. Correct. Actually, I'm perfectly honest, it was through our parent organization, Ability360, so I'm not 100% sure. Okay. Well, I'm just saying, if we got something successful, we're going to have to reach out to these entities, these teams. I mean, they're not going to find us. That's how it has to at least start, I think. Well, but a success story like this, uh, you know, getting that, how Ability360 was able to pull this off, would be really useful information for me to go and say now, hey, Detroit Pistons, is there a way that, you know, the, the 3,000 people that come watch your games, I could, <laughs> I'm joking, obviously, but you know, we could we could do this kind of thing here. I mean, if I knew right. that path, I'm not a fundraiser. I can't sell water in the desert. But if you could get in a situation with the right tools and the right exactly mindset to get that done, I think we'd have a lot more opportunity. And let's face it, we all know that money is a big deal for most teams that, that are huge. Yeah, huge. Every team brings in something different. Every player on the team, just like on the court, brings something off the court. Um, 
like you said, you, you can't sell water in the desert. But you know what? Maybe there's a guy on the team who's a better salesperson or who would be better to, to try to raise money in charitable events like that. Um, maybe there's a guy on the team who has an in with the local media or he's better speaking with the local media and news stations. And, and then maybe there's a guy on the team who's quiet and he's bad at both those things. But what is he good at? He's good at going to the hospitals and the rehabs and, and just peer mentoring, getting other people excited. Everyone has a job to do. Um, off the hey, Nick. Seems to have on the court. Hey, Nick, I think the, the guy that's better at doing that is you. You're articulate. You have a lot of energy. You bring a great spirit. I mean, that that's why you're here right now. We want to talk to you because you are interesting. Well, thanks. Yeah, I actually enjoy um, interviewing you. This is fun, man. So I got a question, yeah. Nick. I got a question for you. Have yeah. you have, do you have any interest anymore? How old are you now? Uh, 33. 33. Do you have any interest anymore at playing at the top level of D1 or USA Rugby? At this point, uh, with D1 ball, I mean, I'm, I'm basically, I'm basically taking a year off, and I don't know if that year is going to be extended or if I'm going to come back from from D1 ball. Um, I've had a really successful career. I've really enjoyed all my time. But I just don't know if it's something that I'm going to want to dedicate my time to anymore. Um, I'm, you know, I'm going to help out in any way I can. I'm always going to be around and, and willing to lend a hand, no matter what, to my team and to the league in general. Just like, uh, just like this, for example. I don't really know what's going to hold for me. I mean, I've been playing for a long time, and I'm kind of getting sick of waking up in my shoulders, uh, just being stiff and cracking in my back and my hips. And you know, it, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of dedication. Um, in training, and it takes a lot of dedication to get to the top of the game on the court, but it also takes a lot off the court. It takes a lot of sacrifice. Right. And after, what did I say, 15, 16 years, I just couldn't be done with it. Um, and with USA, at, at this point, I mean, especially with the current regimen, I have no desire to go back uh, at all. I mean, it's, it's also like we were talking a little bit before the show, I know it wasn't recorded, but about how uh, I got the gold medal in Beijing, and that takes a lot. It, it's easy to burn out when you're playing at that Paralympic level for for eight years, four years, even one year. I see guys who who burn out easy, and um, that's just something at this point that I have really no desire to go back to. Hey Nick, I got a question for you. I actually was uh, in November. They broadcast. It was all delayed the Beijing Paralympics. And uh, when we were doing it, um, I, I knew the situation about your mom. And I hope this is not too sensitive, but the bottom line is you and I have talked about this and you knew what was going on. Did that motivate you? Can you expand on it? So the situation was uh, when I left for... Um, China and actually the whole time that I was training for, for Beijing, yeah, I knew my mom was very sick. Um, she actually was diagnosed with very, very aggressive and very uh, bleak cancer um, around the same time that I found out I was going to my first Paralympics. And I was a 23 year old kid, I was 22 at the time, um, back in around Christmas time. And uh, when she told me, I actually tried to quit the team. I said, look, I don't, I don't have to go to the Paralympics. I, I want to come home back to New York and I want to take care of you. And she basically told me is it would destroy me. Um, 
know, she basically said it would destroy her if I did quit, knowing that she would stop me from doing this. So we made a promise to each other. Uh, she made me promise that I was going to go and that I was going to win a gold medal. And on top of that, I made her promise that she was going to be alive long enough to see me win that gold medal. And uh, I remember training, and, and we kind of looked at it the same way. I mean, I'd call her up some days, and I would go, oh, you know, I just, like, I'm sore, I'm tired, I'm having a hard day training, I don't feel like getting back out there. And she would go, come on, I got, I got cancer, get back out there. <laughs> okay, fine. And then she would call me and go, I, you know, I just, I just had a rough day of chemo, and I'd go, yeah, I got to go push like 10 miles, so <laughs> like, we're going to get through this together, basically. It was, it was motivating the whole time, um, all the way around. And she, uh, she actually, the only time she really ever saw me play rugby, she never came to any of my matches when I was in New York or Florida, was uh, she, knew she, she, she knew she couldn't go to Beijing, so instead she went to Canada Cup. And that was uh, having her and my, my little sister in the audience watching me up in Canada Cup and knowing that it could quite possibly be the first and the last time that she ever watched me play rugby was all the motivation I needed to get through the next couple months and to get through that weekend too um and then when when Beijing rolled around I knew that she was not doing well I wasn't sure how bad she was doing but I knew that it wouldn't be great I knew that there was a good chance that she wouldn't be there afterwards um and uh she went to the hospital for the last time the day before we started playing against China and we beat China and I called home and I said mom would just be China and she was like yeah I'm in the hospital and I feel Awful, but I watched it, and I'm, I'm very proud of you. And uh, the next day, we beat uh, uh, Japan, and I called her and said the same thing. I said, Mom, we just beat Japan, and she said the same thing. Yeah, I watched it, and I could hear her voice getting weaker. And uh, third day, called home and said, we, uh, yeah, we just beat Canada. And she was basically whispering at this point, and just said all she could get out was, I'm so proud of you, and I love you. And uh, when, we called home, when I called home the next day, from the Olympic Village and said, hey, we just beat uh, Great Britain and tomorrow we're playing for a championship um, for a gold medal. Uh, one of uh, our family members picked up and came up with a kind of half-assed excuse where she couldn't come to the phone. And at that point, I knew that it was it was not looking good. And I remember talking to Zupan, who was my roommate in Beijing, the morning before the gold medal game. And he goes, hey, uh, how's your mom doing? And I went, ah, I don't know, man. I don't think she's doing very well. She might, be, she might not be on this earth anymore, to be honest with you. And he just said, well, what can we do? I basically said there's only one thing we can do right now, and that's, that's win a gold medal. Let's go out there. And uh, I was lucky enough to start the game, played about 27, 28 minutes of the 32, and fulfilled uh, my last promise, which was win a gold medal for her. And I remember being up on the podium and just hoping and thinking that I really, really hope that she's watching me, whether it's down here, up there, and smiling. And um, she came up there under the promise too, because uh, 20 hours after, uh, we went basically went straight from the gold medal game. My dad, in front of my entire team, told me, "Yeah, it's she's she's in a coma. She's not going to make it another day." Which um, I basically at that point knew. I wasn't 100 percent sure, but you know, it was kind of hard not to not to know something was up. Went back, packed, went back to the airport in Beijing, flew home. And uh, she died 20 hours after I won. And uh, during her funeral, I had the gold medal um, up on her casket. 
I remember I was talking to my best friend uh, who flew back from Seattle at the time to comment. He goes, like, this is awful. I went, no, oh, this, this, this is beautiful because she kept her last promise to me and I kept my last promise to her. And how could, to be honest at the time, how could I, how could I ever be sad about that? Thanks for sharing, bro. That's an awesome story. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. What, what was your question? Did I go on a rant? <laughs> yeah, no, you nailed it, man. It was awesome. But uh, yeah, it was it was a motivation, but it wasn't only that. It wasn't only knowing that I was doing for her that was motivating, but it was, um, you know, like I said, it was it was Zupan that morning saying, "What can I do?" And it was uh, it was me and Scott Oxett sitting outside. Like every day, we would sit outside the Olympic cafeteria in the village, and. Uh, uh-huh. You know, it's a lot of downtime. So we would drink a lot of coffee and just talk about everything. We would talk about life. We would talk about uh, the past. We talked about the future. We talked about uh, talked about let's make the film. But you know, it was it was my teammates too. We were we would have ran through a wall headfirst for each other to get that gold medal and. Uh, we not, nothing was stopping us for that, and having them supporting me every step of the way, not only while I was over there, but just training and through all of it, and um, it was we were we were we were so tight, and we just wanted it so much for each other. You know, I uh, my wife and I were at that tournament, um, and you know your level of emotion both during the game and especially after the game. Um, we noticed, but we didn't really understand the the bigger picture. But it was, you know, it, you really stood out to us as the joy of winning that gold medal and the relief of all the effort you put into it. Uh, all those things were obvious to us. Um, but, you know, until hearing this, it really didn't put it into perspective as to um, what all was going on there. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Everybody everybody has a reason that they, uh, everyone has a reason that they fight. Whether it's family, whether it's pride, whether it's country, whether it's competitiveness, everyone has a reason that they get out there and uh, and want to get to the top of, that, top of that mountain, get to the top of that podium. It's awesome, man. And when awesome. you do, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you do, you tend to look back at everything that got you there, and all the, you know, all the blood, sweat, and tears, and you look back at everything that got you to the top of that, top of that mountain, and it is all just a blur. Well, um, not everything to just blow you here. All the, all the experiences. You were a defensive force in that game. I mean, nobody could get by you. It was just a, a, a thing of beauty to watch. And that's why you played so much time. I mean, you could just, you were on, anybody they put you on could not get by you. It was, it was amazing, I gotta say. So. And Nick, to, to piggyback on that, so I got hired to do the broadcasting, and it was tape delayed like two or three months in November. And, you know, I had to look at all the rosters and know everybody, the opponents' names and so forth. And I knew who you were, and the four deuce lineup was just freaking amazing. You and Andy and Will and Kirkland, and 
when you guys were killing it there in the finals and it didn't matter like Dave said it didn't matter who their best player was that was your guy and you your ability to defend one on one as a as a class 2 it, I remember watching it going this guy is so damn valuable he can take on anybody's 3 three five it doesn't matter Nick you were tenacious and it was a difference maker and I'll never forget it no thank you now how, how do you think you know when you look back at that those games now you've got the Riley bats and the uh, you know I've got a, you look at Japan you look at uh, Australia you look at GB they've got a pair of freaks on the floor who are just dominant high point uh, guys with trunk do you have as much trouble covering those guys or do you have more trouble covering those guys than you would uh, the guys that were playing at the three and the three five level back when you know you think the Beijing time or or after that well yeah I mean of course it's going to be difficult more difficult to cover them because they have a lot more function um, and it's also bringing in the different function and the different disabilities, that's going to be a lot more difficult because you're going to have, uh, uh, you know, you look, at, you look at a guy like me and, and Bob Bohano and, and um, a lot of the uh, so-called freaks or alternative disabilities that are in the league, but like the mid-pointers, we have a lot of upper body um, issues with our lower body issues as well. But then you got guys who are coming into sport um, who are just getting in under the radar who have no problem catching a throne, they have no problem... Uh, grabbing a ball up high over their head. And it's it's definitely going to make it a lot harder. The sport is adapting. The sport is uh, the whole strategy behind winning and losing. Well, no one tries to lose. But the whole um, strategy behind winning is completely different than it was 10 years ago. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that the sport is adapting. And unless you adapt with it, you're going to be left in the dust. All right. Hey, Nick, how do you feel about that, that moniker, that label, Freak? When you first heard it, and how do you feel about it? Uh, I don't really mind it, man. I mean, pretty got it. It's if they insult me out of frustration, then that just means I'm doing my job. <laughs> but uh, hey, Nick, I want I want to come back with trunk. My next life, I want trunk, man. Yeah, I don't yeah, even want to walk. Yeah. I just want trunk and play ball. We all have trunk that one play ball. thing that would make everything different for us, right? Right, right. One thing that's like says Dave the three five class three, but with age. <laughs> you have some trunk, Dave? I have no trunk. I have no trunk. I can't um, even lean all the way. I, I can't lean down into my push. That's why it looks like I'm in a, a rocking chair when I push because I can't fold up. It's really hard for me to keep up with those uh, trunk three fives. I I take that back. It's impossible for me to even think about keeping up with <laughs> trunk. I, I got deuces in the league who run circles around me because uh, they can lean that push, <laughs> and because they train and they're not at fifty-one, but and they weigh probably forty pounds less than I do. I mean, that hey, is Mike, one thing that actually that Mike, is excuses for you. <laughs> so uh, one thing that always did bug me about that whole like half these guys are here just because they. Uh, you know, because they're freaks, because they're amputees, is, like, that's true. There are a lot of guys who can come in and just take over the sport 
Um, and there are a lot of guys today who are high profile who can still do that. But at the same time, it's I see guys being countered out for well, it's all their function. Well, that's a huge part of it. I also see a lot of these players, and like me back in the day, they're working their ass off to get here. They're studying the sport. They're studying their opponent. They know their strengths. They know their weaknesses. Um, that is just one thing that always bugged me. It's like, okay, yeah, the function goes a long way, but at the same time, you got to work for it, and you got to want it if you really want to get to that level. That's where you see a lot of basketball guys coming into the sport for a couple of years and then just burning out and leaving because they don't have that drive or that motivation. Um, where, uh, you know, you, you see some guys and uh, coming in and they have all the heart, and they might not have the physicality, but the heart can take them a long way. It's when you have the combination of both. I mean, look at Joe Delegrate. When Joe Delegrate came into the league, uh, when he first started with Phoenix, he was a completely different person than he is now. But I can tell you from the minute he got down here, he was motivated more than I think I've ever seen anyone to get to uh, be the you know one of the best players in the world. And he worked for every single minute of every uh, uh, of all the time that he's out there. He's worked his ass off to get to where he is today. And you hey, Nick, a lot he's a way different player than he was when he used to play against us in Minnesota. Yeah, big time. absolutely. Hey, Nick, why do you think he was the first guest on our podcast? Because <laughs> I wasn't available. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Sir. No, Joe's, Joe's uh, so a great guy. He's that's, actually a really good ambassador for the sport, too. He's very well-spoken. Really good friend of mine. Absolutely. Hey, Nick, real quick. So, in all your years, USA, talk about the teammates and the friendships that motivated you, like you just said. Some guys, you know, they rise to the next level, and some burn out fast. Talk about the ones that, you know, did show you and they rised, or rose, rose. I'm an English teacher. Go ahead. Um, you talking about the ones who helped me get there, or the ones who I just... Uh, just, you know, you, 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 you got to see a lot of stuff that we on the outside don't get to see. I'm just curious, you know, who are the guys that brought you and others up to that next level? Well, back when I was first coming in, um, murder ball was, was like the hot topic around then. Uh, and it was, uh, it's what I know brought a lot of the guys into the sport and it's what motivated a lot of the guys because they saw the sport and they saw not only what these guys were doing on the court, but off the court as well. Um, and they wanted that list out. And, uh, like I remember when I first came on, um, and my other guys supported me, obviously, you know, they, we were all really close, but, uh, like I said, a, a lot of the murder ball guys, like I remember meeting Andy and, uh, uh, and that was like 19 and him just going, Oh dude, yeah, you're, you're that Nick Springer kid. Cool. Let's go grab a beer. Just talk about life. And for a lot of these people, it was just that immediate, um, camaraderie. And it was an excitement because they not only saw the potential in a younger player, but they saw what that potential in the younger player could also do for the team. Um, and you see guys come in, a lot of guys who burn out, a lot of the guys who don't make it very far in the USA program are the ones who are just in it for themselves. And you see that all the time. Guys who just want to go out there for the glory and they just want to be the, the you know, the all-star number one out there. And you can't have that on the sport. And you can't have it um, on that team. you got to go out there and want to be one of the 12 guys 
there. It doesn't matter which one, but you're one of the 12. Um, and you want to you want to be there for the right reasons, not just because. Well, I, I just because I, I want the fame or I want the, the popularity or whatever it is. Um, and you see guys who come in and they're all in it for themselves and they're just in it to win it and they end up uh, not making it. They end up burning out pretty quickly or, or getting cut and just saying, well, the hell with this. I'm going to go do something else. So I think that's a really good point to end on. I want to wrap it up and thank you so much, Nick. Seriously, you're, yes. you're awesome to interview and you're your story about 2008, I I cannot thank you enough for sharing that with us. That was huge. Um, really appreciate it. I know that so many other people will, will appreciate it too. So I'm glad you were able to share it with us. And um, I know that Chris and Dave feel the same way. So how do you know that? So much. <laughs> hey, Nick, real quick. I guess you should be a motivational speaker. Oh, yeah, you are. Good work, buddy. <laughs> I'm not a motivational speaker. I uh, work in the uh, vaccinations. But anyway, thank you very much for having me on, guys. Um, and thank you just so much for the three of you for everything that you do in this sport because it's, it's really great to see you guys taking that interest and uh, finding a way to try to better uh, the sport and try to better the athletes. And this this uh, this podcast, I think, is a great way. And I just want to thank you guys for everything that you do and trying to develop the sport and try to move us forward. Um and, uh, you know, if you need anything, not only, not only am I here, but I know there's a lot of guys in this league who are always happy to help. Like I said before, it's a community. And you guys are, you guys are doing a lot of great things for it. So thank you. Thanks, Nick. Thank you.